You are now tuned in to the December 26th podcast, where we encourage you to be extraordinary on an ordinary day. Hey, 26er family, welcome to another episode of the December 26er podcast. I am your host, Felicia, and this episode features Dr. Jamel Rogers. As I've said before, I hope you are staying safe and healthy, but in light of everything going on in the world, we at the December 26er podcast want to make sure that we are using our platform to also address your emotional and psychological well-being. We know many of you are experiencing exhaustion, sadness, stress, and or outrage, and like us, just trying to find ways to cope. So we invited Dr. Rogers on to help us start to unpack and process our pain and explore some healthy ways to maintain some semblance of peace in such a turbulent time. Dr. Rogers is a licensed psychologist and is board certified in clinical psychology from the American Board of Professional Psychology. She's the owner of Fire Igniting Lives and founder of One Temple Fitness. She earned her doctorate from Pepperdine University and has provided trauma-focused care with clients in various programs and correctional facilities. She's also worked with survivors of intimate partner violence and has assisted clients who are involved in criminal, family, and civil cases involving a broad range of forensic issues. Dr. Rogers presently works with survivors who are recovering from emotional, physical, and sexual abuse. Given her level of expertise, we not only discussed some of her personal story, but also spent a great deal of time examining how our historical trauma impacts our ideology, identity, and even our response to current events. I hope you take as much away from this conversation as I did, but before I let you get into it, let me say this. We discussed some topics that may be heavy for some. If you are thinking about suicide, are worried about a friend or loved one, or would like emotional support, please do not hesitate to contact the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline. The Lifeline Network is available 24 hours a day, seven days a week across the United States. And the number is 1-800-273-8255. Again, it's 1-800-273-8255. So without further ado, please take a listen. Dr. Rogers. Welcome to the December 26th podcast. How are you? I'm well. How are you? I'm well, thanks. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. I'm really looking forward to this conversation. I've been sort of hopping in and out of the discourse happening online about everything going on in the world and the, the news and all that other stuff. And it's a lot to take in. And I know that our audience, those who have mentioned to you that we were doing this are really excited um, that we've had someone who's clinically trained uh, and has the credentials to really tackle this subject in a way that hopefully will be helpful to folks. So this is, this is going to be a good one, I think. <laughs> Amen. Good. All right. <laughs> So let's jump into it. Who is Dr. Jamel Rogers? Dr. Jamel Rogers is a multi-layered individual. <laughs> Born in Jersey, raised in Georgia, and now residing in California. That really speaks to who I am. And so being born in Jersey, really that direct we need to get this done, which is why I understand protesting. And then also being raised in the South, having my own racial experiences, um, being called the N-word when I was 15 years old and being chased by these two white boys with guns all the way up until recently when I went to Northern California to visit my friend and I went to get some gas and everything in me told me not to go get that gas and by myself and I did and thinking I could be the next person, even here in California. Um, so while I have a lot of letters before and after my name, my life experiences make up who I am, which is why I am relatable. Growing up in the South, growing up in the North, being around mixed cultures and diverse people 
I understand both sides of the story, but I also understand that years of oppression and historical trauma that we've suffered makes us enraged if you will. And so (laughs) I get it. I get it from the psychological standpoint. I also get it just based on my own life experiences. So let's start with your experience. And I think that's important because A, that's what we do on the show. We humanize folks. But also I think it's important for our listeners to see that you have the relatability, as you mentioned, because You've got the education, you've got the credentials, but it doesn't mean that you have not had to cope with real life experiences as well, especially as someone who came from the North, moving to the South as well. And in the spirit of full disclosures, our families go way back. Way back. So, <laughs> you know, I know the story, all of that. We're, we're basically cousins at exactly. this point. <laughs> um, but for the benefit uh, of our audience, let's talk about that. So born in Jersey, your mother, what, what age were you when you moved uh, to Georgia. So now I'm really going to get personal. 11 years in each state. So y'all can Got do that. <laughs> Which is why I've been joking with God, like, okay, where's my next state? Because 11 years is about to expire this year. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but in New Jersey it was actually unique because when I was in Georgia, I used to reflect on my experiences in New Jersey. Growing up, I had a best friend who was Italian, a best friend who was Black, and a best friend who was white. And so living in a primarily Black neighborhood, but going to an all-Catholic school, white school, and there was two Black people, my brother and myself, then it really just shed some light on some situations. Um, And I recall there was a sleepover for, for our basketball team, and something went down. And back then I just thought, oh, maybe this girl didn't like me. Maybe my parents are being overprotective. No, my parents saw the situation for what it was. And even in the North, they also have racism. And so, but I really didn't see that until I got older and how this individual's parents treated me and how they treated me differently from the rest of the team and the rest of the girls. Because as I said, I had friends, close friends of different races, so it didn't really resonate. But I honestly think that was a good foundation for me before I went to the South, because I was able to not say, oh, you don't like me because of my skin color. Maybe you don't like me just because you don't like me. And maybe I don't like you just because you don't like me. It's not all about race. Right. Um, But at the same time, we do have to see things for what it is. And so growing up in that dynamic and in that world and then going down to the South and I went to a charter school for the first couple of years of high school and I was the government, the student body president and charter schools were new. So each year they added a new grade. And so in our class, it was just the ninth grade class. Being that president, a lot of situations arose and they had bus kids from South Fulton County, which was primarily black from North Fulton County, which was primarily white to Central County, which is where the school was held. And there was just tons of issues. But I really believe my foundation and my experience in New Jersey helped me bridge the gap to have those collaborative conversations between whatever situation was going on with the students. Um, And so then coming out to California... I realized that I prefer the North and the South because we're just more direct and real about things. Out here, it's a lot of systematic oppression, a lot of oppression that's in the laws, um, in, in society. It's very, very covert versus in the North and in the South, it's more overt. And so I really just think the foundation helped me even get through school and understanding um, some teachers the and professors, the way that they would treat you or talk about your writing and then meeting 
mentors who've already obtained their degrees and how um, they say still use your voice right? Your voice matters. And so really just thinking about my life experiences and how I show up for my clients and how I bring it into the room has um, helped me in my professional life as well. Absolutely. So let's talk about, uh, if you can, the experiences that you referenced, right? Um, Moving to the South. And, you know, I think when I talk to my friends, my white friends about incidents of being called the N word, they're like appalled. Like they, they, they just, a lot of them don't connect the dots that this is way more prevalent and common than they realize. Like it, they think that that ended when like sundown towns went away. And that's just not the case. Every yeah. black person I know can recount an incident when I was called the N word on a, pla- a subway platform in New York City, one of the most diverse places. Right. <laughs> and you're like, wow. And it literally was like, I don't, it, there was no altercation. I just walked by and somebody said it, right? So, and their their minds are blown. For us, that's where our minds are not blown when that right. happens, but their minds are blown when I tell them because often we're not explicitly talking about our experiences, right? Um, so what do you recall about what led up to, to that so incident? So very viv- vividly, it was my 15th birthday. I got out of school early so I can get my permit. After I got my permit, my mom dropped me off at my best friend's high school and um, to go see her basketball game and also to show her that I got my permit, etc. So I'm just sitting in the stands. These two white boys are sitting behind me and one says it. And I, <laughs> I just, I'll never forget this. I, I froze because on one hand, I was shocked. Like, I'm just sitting here. On another hand, I'm thinking the audacity of you. And all I did was turn around. I guess I had the look of death on my face. I don't know, because I didn't really have to say anything and they just left. And so it didn't turn into an altercation, but it was almost like the audacity of you. But at the same time, we have to remember that the KKK was still alive and well in fourth Forsyth County, which is right next to North Fulton County. And so um, they they had the Confederate flags. Um, there, there, were, there were a lot of issues. Even in my undergraduate, I went to Spelman for undergrad. So in Atlanta, and I had an internship, a social work internship, but it was primarily the, fam- the families that we serviced were in rural Georgia. And my mom was so concerned that I had to drive to Forsyth County um, to go in these people's homes. Even though these individuals had their children taken away, I had to go into their homes to talk to them and to coach them and how to get back their children. And my mom is worried about her child and her child's safety. And there was only one time that I was afraid because I was doing an in-home session with one of my adolescents and some family members came over and one of the aunts said to the mom, like, I didn't know that her counselor wasn't white. And, (laughs) you know, and she, she was like, you know, one of those people. Um, but the adolescent, again, corrective experiences, the adolescent said, well, one of those people helped me understand why I use drugs and got kicked out of school. So we really have to say that some people, even in the same family, right, can correct their own family members and then can provide us with corrective experiences. Because that made me really uncomfortable. They lived in the back, 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 back woods. And so I, I was, you know, uneasy in that situation. But at the same time, um, to, to, to know that I felt like God was saying, like, you're good. And, and we do mm-hmm. have to have those moments of just um, standing up for one another. On the other hand, living in California, I always thought growing up, people of color stay together no matter what. 
Like we stick together. Well, out here, there's a lot of race wars with the Latinos and the African-Americans, particularly from the gang aspect. So that was new for me because I'm thinking, I say, hey, do you say what's up? You know, and we're good. And um, and so just even learning that, okay, we don't need to be divided as people of color. We need to stick together because that every if we really look at it from a historical standpoint, people from the Caucasus Mountains, a lot of white people, they have oppressed different groups of people. We can look at the Japanese camps. We can look at the Holocaust, um, the Native Americans, um, Hawaiians. We can go all over the Armenian genocide. I mean, and it only goes back to one group of people. I'm not sitting here blaming white people because I have some really close white friends who are advocates and allies, and they're just as riled up about the injustices. But we do have to look at the common thread. And so what do we do and what do our generation of peers do to their grandparents who are in political power, to their aunts and uncles who are running school systems and they still have laws in place that have the educational disparities, right? For example, when I went to Georgia, I was going into the sixth grade, started a couple of weeks after um, because in the South, they, their time frame for starting school is different than in the North. And um, there was, I had got into it with this girl I don't even remember the whole situation, but I think I said something along the lines of, I'm going to cut you. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and I'm laughing because I know you, right? So you're up here and you're going to articulate very well. And, you know, you're going to throw the stats and the information. But I know you, Dr. Rogers. So that's why I'm laughing because I'm not surprised you, by hey, this. But continue. That jersey had to come out to be like, I could be sweet, but don't go there. And apparently that was a threat. I mean, now that I'm a forensic psychologist, I understand that that was a threat, right? But in my 12-year-old mind, I'm like, how? Like, I didn't do anything. Um, and um, But the assistant principal, so I did, I lived in a, a, a nice neighborhood. And in that neighborhood, they had a 6th, 7th, and 8th grade principal. And then they had the principal of the whole school. So the 6th grade principal, she was an African-American woman. And um, bottom line is she gave me in-school suspension. But then after it was all said and done, she had a conversation with me, like one-on-one real conversation. And that was necessary to understand the environment, to understand the dynamics, to say that, you know, where these people are and how racism exists in those neighborhoods. Um, And so really thinking about it now that if the roles were reversed, would she have received even in-school suspension? Would she have just received a write-up? Because what we know that people of color, particularly African-American students, are more likely to be expelled, to be suspended. So then you got to talk about the prison, the school to prison pipeline, right? If you're not in school, then what are you doing? You're hanging out with your friends. If you come from a single parent household or even a two parent household and they both have to work, then what are you doing with your idle time? You're meeting people who also have idle time and that's how you get caught up. And then that's how you enter into the juvenile system. That's how you enter into the adult system. So we really have to look at the disparities of when two people get in trouble, who's more likely to actually have the repercussions that is necessary. Because in my professional opinion, looking at that situation, did it really deserve an in-school suspension? No, in-school suspension is not as bad as the out-of-school suspension, but could it have just been settled a different way? 
because I know that if I was white, it would have been, they would have downplayed it. Um, and I was listening to this Instagram live conversation and this white woman was talking about the damsel in distress and how white women use tears to get out of things. And I'm so happy that she acknowledged that because that's another thing that I've constantly from all my life I have seen, which is probably why I always have this, you know, the saying like tears don't bother me, kids, adults, like you can't cry your way out of things with me after you stop crying and articulate yourself. Because I recognize that tears is how a person, particularly white women, exert their power. I'm so afraid. I'm so ashamed. I don't know what else to do. And so therefore, if I cry about it, then you have to know it's serious. You have to know it's real and you have to listen to me. And so that over time, even being a supervisor who supervises Caucasian women and um, and not all again, not all, but just seeing through the foolishness of their tears but then having a, a person over me. So my supervisor, who may be white, taking that person's tears and then saying, okay, well, you're in the wrong, right? And so even looking at it from a professional grown, good and grown standpoint of how it still affects us. Yeah, and, and it's funny you brought up that trajectory from your first experience to now. And I think all of us, Black men and Black women, have these stories and I remember, you know, going to a, a prep school, really prestigious, really expensive. And I'm the kid from a few towns over and one, you know, the only monoracial black girl in the class in junior high and this one biracial girl. But I had been there a week or two weeks and it got back to me that a white female student has said she needs to go back to Africa. So mm-hmm. again, those Jersey roots, leave me in who I- <laughs> I didn't go tell. I caught her in the locker room after gym and and confronted her about it. Right. I heard you said this. I didn't threaten her or anything, but the tears started immediately. Right. And she didn't confirm or deny, but she went to the headmaster or the head of the upper school or whatever and reported me for being aggressive with her. And I ended up in the office having to explain the what led to that conversation. Right. She didn't mention any of that, right? right? That, that only came out after I, and thankfully I, I had a culturally sensitive administrator who was like, oh no, like th- right. th- this is an important context here. Um, and I think we all have those stories professionally, personally, et cetera. And that doesn't take away from the, like you said, the allies that we have and the Caucasian friends that we have who can acknowledge their privilege, but also speak, on the issues of the day and also put their relatives in their place. Yeah. You know, that old racist. That's the part of it. That don't sit and condone and remain silent at the Thanksgiving yeah. table. Right. I'm jumping ahead. But um, that this is an important and it's important thing. And it's something that people don't want to talk about how white victimhood is weaponized against us, Ooh. even if it's not really victimhood. Right. You right. can craft it as such, even if it's it's an incident that you instigated in, right. in circumstances that you you created. Um, and that's something that we're seeing in the news. That's something right. that is is happening, has been happening for years and years and years and years without people accepting responsibility. Right. And then what, what I think frustrates me is often you have a Black person who has been victimized who then has to stand up and say, 
stop being so hard on them. Their lives are being ruined. She apologized to me. All is well. And and also a lot of that is, is rooted in, in, in our Christian culture right. and what we believe and, and all of that. And we can get into that as well. But I think all, all of these factors are contributing to the outrage that we're experiencing and that we're we're tired of taking the L in a lot of different ways and offering essentially condolences and support to the people who have victimized us. Yes, um, and, and I think that also speaks to the this idea that we don't experience pain in the same way. Mm. We, that we're strong enough to not only process our pain very quickly, but then come out and tell you to stop harassing the person that caused the pain to start with. Um, and I want to, I want to unpack all of that. From, I was going to say, go let's ahead. talk about that go for ahead. a second, because it's interesting. I testify a lot about psychological abuse and our brain does not differentiate between physical pain and emotional pain. Our mm. brain re- registers pain the same exact way. And so I thought that was interesting how you said that we just process it fast and we get past it. But I would offer that most people don't process it. They just get past it because years of physical pain, years of psychological pain, watching your children being taken away from you at birth, watching your husband being shot in front of you, hung in front of you, watching your wife being raped and beat and killed all throughout slavery times. Then you bring it to civil rights and post-construction. You, you continue to see it and you're seeing the same things on the news today. So I just wonder if we have never, which is why we're so enraged and angry, even process the pain because we have to just say, you got to get over it because tomorrow something else is going to happen. And so if you actually sit in that pain too long, then you might become depressed. You might become sad and you might become demobilized. But instead, we're using that pain to try to push our way forward and propel ourselves forward. Right. And so I wonder if we actually tapped into counseling and mental health resources to process the pain of our past and our present then would we actually respond a different way, right? And and so, and then also American society doesn't allow us to be human, to say, yes, you have feelings and you have pain and you can take time to process that pain as well. If anything, it's just like, no, you have to get over it because you have work that I need you to do. I need you to go in the kitchen and feed my children. I need you to go and educate my children. I need you to go and watch my children. Your children come second. So now you also have pain of I'm missing out on my family because I have to continue to quote unquote serve the master. Right. And you see it throughout time. it's, It's just very pervasive. And so when we look at pain, I believe that right now, a lot of people are coming from a, a painful place, but also a tired place because it's been hundreds of years that this has been happening, right? At the same time, there's a difference between protesting and rioting. And so when we really want to get the point across, protesting is better than rioting. And I had said this earlier on my website, I said, we really need to look at Malcolm and Martin, how they met first, they collaborated first, and then they executed. They just didn't execute. They just didn't react to the first thing, right? And so 
I'm not saying that what people are doing in totality is wrong. That's not what I'm saying. But what I am saying is that we need to look at why we are reacting the way we are reacting. And the bottom line is a lot of people have unprocessed pain and not just historical trauma, even unprocessed pain of their own family issues and things. Absolutely. And it's something that we've brought up on this show that we often think about trauma in the sense of the things that you just mentioned, witnessing murder, uh, losing a family member, sexual abuse, et cetera. And I think because we've been through so much as a people that we don't acknowledge those traumatic events that could have affected us that don't appear as severe on its face. Yes. So, you know, a, a fractured relationship with a parent, you know, divorce, loss, uh, underemployment or unemployment, socioeconomic issues, all of those things that are affecting us as well and are absolutely traumatic. Life absolutely. events that, that, that can in, inflict trauma. But because of what we've experienced as a people, it's normalized as everyday life because mm-hmm. many of us have, you may not have all those things, but you can speak to a divorce or yeah. unemployment or my mom had to start over or my dad this, et cetera. Um, and I think we're having more conversations and are allowing ourselves to be more vulnerable about how we've been affecting affected by those things, but not as much as I think we need to be having. We're moving in the right direction, and but not having those conversations, which is why I think we're seeing a manifestation of people not knowing how to healthily process yeah. now that we're being bombarded in a way where it's literally sensory overload. We don't know how to healthily process that. Right. Absolutely. And I definitely agree with you about the sensory overload and also the historical trauma aspect because of the long-term effects it has on us and it has had on us and people not believing that post-traumatic slave syndrome, which Dr. Joy DeGruy actually coined that term, not believing that it's real and saying that essentially post-traumatic slave syndrome is PTSD post-slavery, right? You, for PTSD, you have to witness a traumatic event. People have witnessed traumatic events for hundreds of years. Our people have witnessed traumatic events for hundreds of years. And when you when you put that in with epigenetics, which is just a term of that a gene, it doesn't change the gene, but it puts like a biomarker on the gene and to make us more susceptible to anxiety, depression and other trauma related disorders. Then you're saying, OK, and most of the time for us, we don't have that we don't have that like deep sadness. We have more so that irritability trauma, right? So that irritability that presents as anger. Why? Because we don't have the option to lay in the bed. We don't have the option um, to not go to work. We don't have the option to not take care of our children or the master's children. So we need to really take a step back and say, okay, my depression, most people of African descent, looks like irritability. It doesn't look like the sadness of I couldn't eat today. I couldn't shower today because we have to persevere. We did not have an option and we still do not have an option to say I can just lay in the bed and call in work, you know, call in sick, etc. And so really just looking at historically, we have a predisposition to be more anxious, to be more depressed, but we don't talk about it. One, because it looks different. It's not what they show you in the movies. It's not what they show you on commercials. And it's not what they actually want to talk about, that our depression really comes from being on edge. There's also a term called cultural paranoia. And when you look at cultural paranoia, it's there. So let me start over. There's a continuum. 
right? When you talk about trauma, there's hypervigilance, which is a key symptom of trauma, constantly checking your surroundings, looking over your shoulder, right? Then on the other end of the spectrum, you have paranoia. That's that severe, I'm always uh, thinking somebody is after me. Culture of paranoia is more in the middle because it's, I'm checking around my surroundings, but more than other people who have just maybe experienced some trauma in their life because of the years of that, my heritage and my culture and my race, because of the years of oppression that I have suffered. And so a lot of people, they don't tell their child, I'm teaching you about cultural paranoia right now. They just say, unlike your friends, you need to always have your ID on you. You need to always make sure that you come in at a certain time, that you don't drive through that neighborhood at a certain time. Um, or, you know, even, even growing up in Alpharetta, I remember one time I was in my mom's car and I got pulled over because my mom had a nice car. And it's like, what is this young black girl in this nice car doing in this area? Right. And, and being taught that you might get pulled over. And if you get pulled over, these are the protocols that you have to go by. And your friends never even thinking about that or even being taught about that. And so we have learned to have this constant vigilance, if you will, of just like the potential threats based on our skin color. Absolutely. And I actually was just posting about this, that we have to psychologically perf- prepare for how our skin color might affect any and every encounter that we have. And, you know, I've grown up in white spaces. I went to school in them. I've worked within them. Uh, I'm, you know, I'm always used to being the other, but it's always fascinating to me. It's funny you brought up the ID thing, because as you were talking about this, it's the first example that popped in my head. You're going out with folks and, you know, one of my white friends would be like, oh, you know, I forgot my ID, but it's okay. And I'm looking like, what? (laughs) Like there's no way I'm being caught in public and staying Without identification. I even go running with my ID on me. Yeah. But how crazy that I even have to think about that or do that. That I'm like, I literally should not leave my house, especially because most of the time I do live in predominantly white areas. And so it's like, well, what is this black person doing walking around our neighborhood? You know, all the time. Happened to me on Friday. I went to go pick up some pizza and I just walked around the neighborhood that I went to go pick up the pizza in. And yes, I'm looking like I am the only person of any pigmentation around here. But at the same time, why do I have to live in that fear? Why? Absolutely. And, And that's the piece, I think, that we've been trained to do it. And for a while, it's just what you knew is what you had to do to survive. But I think the more and more we're having these public discourse about it, the more and more we're seeing these incidents, the question of why is being asked. Now, where I think it's becoming problematic for a lot of people is how that question is being manifested in people's actions Mm -hmm. uh, because they're out of patience and they want answers. And now it is becoming a situation where um, violent, violent outrage is now in play, which I want to get into mm-hmm. and, and what, what leads to that point. But I want to back up before we dig deeper into historical trauma and all of the, the work that you've done in this area. I just want the people to know who Dr. Rogers is. So let's talk about your educational background, how you came to this field, what drew you to it, et cetera. You mentioned Spelman. I know how hard y'all AUC people roll. I, I know, I know that. <laughs> Well, honestly, it bottom line, whether people believe in God or not, my journey was all God based because I applied 
to one undergrad. Now, granted, I am strategic about things. I applied to Spelman early and I said, if I don't get in, then over the Christmas holiday, I'll apply to other schools. Well, thank you, Lord. I got in with a scholarship and I went there. I only had one major psychology but I leveraged it with always having multiple internships, many of them paid. And so that actually prompted me to want to start having interns in my own private practice at the undergraduate level for people of color so they can get the experience. Um, then I, when I came to California, I applied to Pepperdine for their master's program, just a general, again, in psychology. And then I applied to their um, clinical doctorate program. So I have a doctorate in clinical psychology, and now I am a board certified in clinical psychology. And so being board certified is the highest credential you can get in psychology to show your level of competence and for other people to know. And so for me, when I was applying to be board certified, I wrote that in the letter. I said, one of the reasons why I want to be board certified to show that people of color can reach the highest level in their field of credentialing, as well as I would like to have a training program for undergraduate students of color so they can start to get the experience and be exposed to the field early on. And so that's who I am academically and professionally. I am a licensed clinical and forensic psychologist. And so most of my work um, deals in the forensic realm. And forensic is just psychology and law, the intersection between psychology and law. And a lot of my cases are criminal cases and um, civil cases, so like personal injury cases. And lately, I um, am a part-time custody evaluator for the Institute on Violence, Abuse, and Trauma here in San Diego. And so I do custody evaluations, which, pray for me. Um, because when you talk about, um, really working heavy with people's children, uh, that, that, that takes a toll on people. Right. And so, um, that's what I currently do from the professional so, academic standpoint. I'm jumping way ahead, but since she said, pray for me, I'm going to bring this up <laughs> now. So my last semester of law school, I did my externship at a domestic violence and immigration clinic, right? So providing services to folks who are at the in intersection of maybe being undocumented or having green card issues, but also victims of abuse, dealing with custody, all of those things. And I did that for one semester, okay? By the fourth week, I was not sleeping. I was having dreams about clients, about my own self being in weird situations. It was really heavy stuff, which, which is why our... Um, supervising professor said required that we kept journals. Right. So wherever we were working, we had to keep these journals and speak with her every couple of weeks, whatever. You're in the thick of this full time as a professional. How do you maintain your peace? And I know you're spiritually grounded. Mm -hmm. How do you maintain your peace in the midst of a lot of dysfunction? Honestly, I really believe that my profession is my ministry. And since, you know, God qualifies the call. And so because he called me to this, he equipped me and qualified me to be able to handle it. It doesn't affect me. And I know that I, it's hard to say that to some people because I have seen how it, how it affects other people, but everybody can't be a trauma psychologist. Everybody cannot really dive in and hear stories of how their father abused them. And then this is why now they're a child molester. Everybody can't handle that. And so um, so I really believe it's because like God has purposed me for this profession, why there's like a barrier and a, a, a hedge of protection. In addition, 
every great therapist has a therapist. And (laughs) and so I also have um, a therapist and most of the time, especially lately, it's just a lot of case consultation. But when you're able to talk about the cases and process through the cases, it helps to see if there's any, um, any issues coming up, if you will. And so, and I also journal, I believe that writing and not even so much that I believe research even indicates that writing produces solidatory health effects because it helps express our emotional truth. So writing is very um, necessary and critical, but I always take a mind, body, spirit approach. In addition to the writing, in addition to the consultation and the therapy, I love to exercise. And so I make sure that I exercise daily. The days that I don't feel like it, I may just walk for an hour, but walking also really helps. And then of course I pray, I meditate, I listen to sermons. I listen to positive spiritual music, gospel music, et cetera. So really just make sure that I stay whole because if I'm not whole, then I'm not bringing my whole self to my client. And a lot of my clients, particularly in San Diego are juvenile cases. And that is where they actually have restorative justice. They actually have interventions at the juvenile level. So really trying to make sure I do my due diligence and I really present the case in the fullness of every aspect of it. Because I have seen reports where people call themselves a psychologist and I question it. And knowing that at disproportionate rates, there's a lot of black and brown children and youth and adolescents in juvenile hall and being even held in prisons that I know I have to make sure that I take care of myself so I can bring my Absolutely. best to the table. So. People have a lot of questions. Uh, There's a lot happening online. People trying to make sense of what's going on in the world. A lot of debate about the reactions that are are being had to the incidents that have been uh, in in the news. I I will tell you, and and to be completely honest, I'm I'm watching things. I'm watching people shut down highways. I'm, I'm watching the outrage and I'm reading comments online like, you know, time's up. It's a it's about time. And I'm thinking, didn't we do this like Warren Highway shut down a couple of years ago. Yeah. So, you know, I'm, I'm very jaded in terms of thinking that this is going to institute change while I'm sensitive to the acts and I know why it's happening. And I'm not someone who's going to stand up and say, what would MLK do? You know, I'm not engaging in that rhetoric. My question is, okay, as a people, is this going to help us? And is it, it going, is it going to help us not from, just the sense of safety and security and where laws are changing and, and people have to, to account for their actions um, at a legislative level, at a government level within the criminal justice system, but also checking in, which is why you're here, checking in with ourselves spiritually and, and from a mental health perspective and emotionally to say, okay, how do we come out of this whole, or if not, at least feeling like we have the resources to acknowledge what is happening with us internally and make sure that we get help. And we're having the appropriate conversations. Um, so let's start. You mentioned his historical trauma. I know you've done a lot of work in this area. I definitely want to expound on what that is. Talk about the power and control wheel as well. So for the person who's never heard that term before, what's the primer on historical trauma? So historical trauma, some people also use transgenerational trauma. Simply put, it's just the long-term effects of genocide, slavery, and oppression. That's the way to sum it up, right? <laughs> so for sure. And I, I've seen um, you know, we all have heard that get over it. That was however long ago. You're not living in this now. You don't have a master. You know, why are you still talking about it? And at that, that narrative seems to only apply to us. 
Like nobody would walk up to a Jewish person and say, why are you still talking about Auschwitz? Like that would never, ever happen. Right. Um, So when you talk about the long term effects, how does that play out with those of us today who going to college or working a job or, you know, are three, four generations removed um, from the things that are impacting us today? But how does that manifest in our lives? And so multiple ways, number one, let's just talk about it from a practical standpoint, right? If you're engaging in a situation with a person of a different race and they say, stop being so sensitive, you're being overly sensitive, or um, why do you think that that person said that to you because of your race? What they misunderstand is that when we respond to situations, we're not just responding to that situation in the moment, we're responding to the years of oppression, right? That our people had to go through, or we're responding even to our own life and saying, okay, I I was quiet in this situation. I was quiet in that situation. Now it's time for me to respond. So no, I'm not being overly sensitive. I'm actually responding appropriately because I'm tired of this, right? Also epigenetics. So the epigenetic standpoint that I had mentioned a little bit earlier It's showing up in our lives because it makes us more susceptible to uh, being anxious, to being depressed and to having traumatic experiences. It just looks a little bit differently in our lives. And so we don't look at anxiety as I have to be perfect. I have to make sure that everything's in order. No, our anxiety might be, are my bills being paid? Do I have job security? Do I have enough food on the table? Making sure that I stay in quote unquote line at my job. And so that's one of the examples I talk about for the historical trauma power and control wheel that some people in terms of economic abuse, some of our people, people of color, they don't want to speak up at their job because they're afraid of losing their job. They're afraid of being reprimanded at their job. And then that's going to impact their income. And so we stay quiet against the microaggressions. We stay quiet against really, truly even the micro assaults where you can tell this person intentionally said something or did something. Um, And so looking at that, it manifests in our mental health. It manifests even in our physical health and how we view um, food. Do we hoard food or do you say, no, you have to make sure you eat the food that's on your plate because you might not get it again. And so it really just comes up in various um, factors and assets in our life. But looking at it currently, the power and control will standpoint, as I mentioned earlier about educational disparities, right? And looking at the suspension rate in the school to prison pipeline, also educational disparities, knowing that a state disperses the same amount of money to eat each county, but in that county, they pour in more money in educational resources, which is why some people really don't understand how you can have one county that have iPads and another county that have textbooks from the 90s, or how states such as Arizona can have textbooks in their school systems that say slavery was an option. So when you really look at the historical trauma power control wheel, who's in charge, what laws do they continue to have in place, also how they sexualize, looking at sexual violence, how they sexualize women of African descent because of our skin, because of our body type, and then how they rape us and pretty much throw us away. Why? Because if you do not look at somebody as a human, then then you do not exist to them. You're, you're like any other animal. That's why I can just shoot you and walk about my business. That's why I can just rape you and walk about my business. And so when somebody doesn't recognize you as an equal, as a human being, then they treat 
treat you as such. And so it really shows up in how we make decisions. It even shows up sometimes in the partners that we choose. Do I want to date somebody or marry somebody who might be a white male? Because then I am actually seen as more superior. I am actually seen as 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 not one of them, you know, or our people, right? And so looking at even some of that self-hate that starts to develop and then how that comes to play in your decision-making, whether consciously or subconsciously. And then also really looking at the historical trauma standpoint of how does it manifest in your day-to-day life when it comes to even your spirituality? Do you start to believe that it was truly um, a white man's religion? And so then you want to turn away from it. Um, Also, how people have used spirituality against certain groups of people. And so it really just manifests in in, in multiple ways. And, um, and, And the last thing I just want to say about this, looking at the social economic status of an individual, right? That comes to play more so because while people who are more educated or live in better neighborhoods, they they face the police less often. Um, so it doesn't necessarily eradicate it. It changes the game a little bit, but it doesn't eradicate it because at the end of the day, you're still a black person. Absolutely. And I'm glad you brought that up because this is the drum that I've been beating all weekend, you know, this weekend. And and one of the things that people say to me, my white friends, when I mention these things and then they're like, you like not you. And they, they don't realize that, like, I don't walk around with a degree <laughs> from pen stuck to my forehead. Right. Or covering my face. I don't have some veil over me that says I have ESQ behind my name or I'm a, I'm a quote, good person. I'm a safe Negro woman. I'm a black woman. <laughs> when I get up, when I walk out in the morning, when I walk into the bank, when I walk into a luxury hotel, when I walk into the grocery store, I am a black woman first. And I know that. And I I behave accordingly. But there are people, I think, within our communities who think that if I just get the right job and I marry the right person, I have the bespoke suit and I do all these things, then I'm going to be accepted, which is tragic. It's absolutely tragic. But I also understand um, the, the effects of internalized white supremacy. And, and, and how that that impacts how we make decisions and, and, and how some of us do try to become another in hopes of insulating ourselves from an incident. Um, but it's interesting because, you know, I've worked in corporate spaces for a very long time and I know those types of black folks as well uh, who, who function in that way. And but at the same time that they're trying to to navigate this space and try to differentiate themselves. I also have had conversations with how they've negotiated promotions and money and, you know, all these things. And it's in the way that they approach those things, that the the internalized white supremacy is on full display because a lot of them underneath it all have the, I'm just happy to be here approach to things, which is pervasive amongst all of us. You know, it's one of the reasons I think that there's the income disparities, even with those of us who have the education or in these spaces is not just because part of a huge part of it is because they're not making the offers to us uh, that they should, but also we're not negotiating and making the demands. They're always going to start low. When I was talking to my white friends, right? Same credentials. And we're talking about the process of going through a job offer and the outlandish requests that they make from a money perspective, from a benefits perspective, because they believe that they deserve it. Absolutely. And you know what? Two things on that. One, 
one of my mentors recently received a book deal and the Holy Spirit was like, "Mm -mm, don't be so excited and quick. Take a moment, read through it. And she was like, you know what? No, I need more money. And what happened? They gave her more money. And so we also have to know that we can't just be so excited to accept what is handed to us because we think that this is the opportunity of a lifetime. It might be the opportunity of a lifetime, but obviously you're also bringing something to the table. So you need to know your own self-worth and what you're bringing to the table, what your value is and why you need to be paid for it. Because I'm sure they're not just handing out these little small deals to other people. Right. And then also it's interesting because I like, this is recorded. (laughs) Remember, still got to go to work after this. Remember, (laughs) And and you know what? And and, and on that note, then I'm going to say this, right? So I was the training director um, at the Institute and I realized how much money I was bringing in. And I just started doing the numbers in my head and how many hours I was working. And I had requested a raise and it was just like, no, because, um, you know, we've had some supervision concerns. And so you need to work on that more. And I was just like, "Hmm, okay. Yeah. And then I just got fed up and I gave them my notice, but I'm always a team player. So I gave 45 days. But then the owner wanted to talk about, well, how much will it make you stay? No, sir. We, but how much should have came months ago when I had said that? Why? Because you started doing the numbers in your head and you realized how much money that I was bringing into your company. Right. And so that's how we landed on. Okay. I'll just be part-time focusing on this one particular specific area. Right. Um, because God had blessed my private practice anyways. And so I don't believe it's necessarily good to work in isolation. So I'm happy to still be a part of the team. But at the same time, I had to advocate for myself and I called my mom one day and I was like, I just can't do this. Like I can't, but I also don't have the money saved that I want to be to jump ship. But then my mom said, the type of work that you do, you don't can't have unnecessary stress, right? And this is unnecessary stress. And the way our God is set up, he'll supply. And what happened? Goodbye, unnecessary stress. Thank you, Jesus, for supplying. So at the end of the day, we have to advocate for ourselves, but we can't be afraid because that goes into the historical trauma, power and control wheel. We can't be afraid to say, you're underpaying me. You're overworking me. You're giving this person more money than you're giving me. And they don't even work as nearly as hard as I do or bring in as much money as I bring in. But yet and still, you just want me to keep working because you want me to change some things about my interpersonal style because somebody came in your office and used crocodile tears. Goodbye. No, thank you. And so all I know is that when I talk to other people, I even consult with this guy who's Asian. And when he said to me, How long are you going to be subjected to this prejudice and racism? That hit me so hard because I didn't even see it like that. And when you take a step back, I'm like, I see it. And so the Institute is still a wonderful place. It's all good there. But at the end of the day, you have to call a spade a spade. Absolutely. And people will take advantage of you as long as you let them take advantage of you. And and it's I call it death by a thousand cuts. Right. We it's it's the things that are happening to us every single day that are reinforcing these ideologies that we are less than that we just accept that you're going to have to work twice as hard to get half as much. And we don't get a second chance and you got to knock it out of the park every single day. You want to keep your job. I've seen 
I don't know how many white men learn on the job while making a ridiculous amount of money with no idea what they're doing and giving five years, to, giving five years to ramp up and figure it out. Um, but I think it's important and, and we're not minimizing the risk right. right, that comes with right. speaking up and making certain demands and, and what have you. There is risk there, but it's necessary to start changing our approach because so much of what we experience is structural, right? It's institutional racism. There are socioeconomic factors. And and be clear, there are many of us who have advanced degrees who are doing well for ourselves. But at the same time, when you look at historically the economic, the legislations that have affected the economies of our family, yes, right? That we can be doing okay today, but many of us know that we're not going to inherit $5 million, right? Yeah. Or our, our families are not set up in a way to pass down a level of generational wealth that we know whether I lose this job or not, I'm good, right? I can call my dad or when my parents die, I know I'm coming into an estate that's $20, $30 million, right? Um, so these are all of the things that I think we need to acknowledge as problematic, but also be willing to find our voice. And, and that takes changing our own view of ourselves, which is hard, right? Our identity is so rooted in the things that you've mentioned. Even though we are on this I'm, you know, I'm black and I'm proud. We're talented. We're this. We have a certain swag and, and bravado about us. Yes. It, it really manifests, I think, in the, the conversation we're having right now, when, how you negotiate for money for what you deserve, the relationships that you you stay in because subconsciously they th- you think that's the best you can do or we've only ever seen dysfunction. So we don't know how to act. When right. we're with someone who brings a peace into our lives and it's like, this is uncomfortable, right? right. Um, all, all of those things, all of our experiences are, are manifesting and driving how we approach every single day. Um, and I think there are those of us who've been to therapy who've started to unpack that and can at least identify um, some of the issues that come up and say, okay, wait a minute, let me take a, take a beat. But there are a lot of us who've not ventured into that world for financial reasons. We're just not comfortable being vulnerable, you know, what, what have you. And I will acknowledge the financial piece. It's a Absolutely. concern for a lot of people of therapy. I'm, I'm not acting like that's not the case, but on the flip side, right? I, I think the stigma is changing and, yes. and people are having much more open conversations about therapy and the benefits of it. And you can have Jesus and a therapist and they can work together. Thank you. So let's stop talking like religion is a replacement for professional help because it's not. It's okay. not. Um, but do you think the industry, I hate to call it an industry, but the practice of mental health, that they're providing adequate training to practitioners to be able to be culturally responsive to us when we do finally decide to sit on the couch? It's evolving slowly. You know, as we know, evolution is a gradual change over time. And that's exactly what it is. It's it's evolving slowly because I know that you have to have um, in your internship, even in my board certification, in every layer, there is a cultural piece to it. Now, the question is, is it just a check mark or is it actually talked about? Right. I have I do trainings and I have noticed that more organizations reach out to to talk about implicit bias trainings, the historical trauma, power and control will trainings, uh, cultural sensitivity. What does it look like even having their interns? And I say, do you ever tell them to see if there is a modified version of this intervention? So, for example, 
A lot of people know about trauma-focused cognitive behavioral therapy, but not a lot of people know about culturally modified trauma-focused cognitive behavioral therapy. And even though the, the research was based on the Latino population, how we can use that for anybody who has a spiritual or religious foundation, right? And so are we taking the necessary steps? Yes. Can we do more? Always. But I do think that it is um, starting to evolve, particularly the more that you have people of color in leadership, the more that you have people in color in leadership, you'll actually ask your students the hard questions. Are you conceptualizing this case from a multifaceted with people who have various intersects? Because like I always give this example to my students. Just because somebody says they're Caucasian, it doesn't mean that they don't have culture. You need to dig deep. Culture is something simple as I had a client, the culture of his family was to be the alpha male. He was in a car accident. And so he could never live up to the culture of his family to be that strong alpha male because he was bound to a wheelchair. And so how did that impact his identity? So sometimes we just say culture is your skin color and your your racing, your ethnicity, but it's deeper than that. Every family has a culture, right? Every everybody had even every person has a culture and what they subscribe to. But we're not having those conversations because we want to just make it a race thing. And that's even some of the issues what what we see today and what's going on. They want to say it's black versus white, but it's not black versus white. It's black people being outraged by all of the injustices, but there's also white people who are outraged by all of the injustices. So it's people versus racial injustices, right? And so when we actually start to say that everybody has a culture, then I think that we will be more aware of addressing, am I doing my due diligence with this person who's Asian and Buddhist? Did I go and look up any Asian practices? Do, do I go and look up to see, okay, this person is Pentecostal. What does that even mean? Obviously you want to talk to that person because the client is the expert on themselves. Never think that you're the holder of all knowledge. I tell my clients, you know everything about you. I know a lot about psychology and that's how we can create change, right? And so- Yes. Overall, we are moving in the right direction, but we can always do more. Absolutely. And I it's it's hard to take in everything that's happening. But I think one blessing that has come out of all of us sheltering in place and or modifying if we can't fully shelter in place and modifying our activities, not being as social is you're seeing these conversations come up more. I haven't spoken to one person on the podcast the last few weeks who hasn't had seven other conversations. Um, so it's, it's in, it's reinforcing the idea that we need to have the dialogue yeah. and people are home and they're taking in, um, the information for sure. And one of the dialogues that's happening, as I alluded to earlier is around the, the protests that are, that are going on. And, and the U S is on fire right now, literally. literally. Right. Um, and we see these instances of, People coming out with these long diatribes online or government leaders who trot out the TIs of the world and, you know, the killer mics and asking everybody to, to settle down. Um, so you have that. You have people who are online who are saying, without saying it, that people are being animals. Right. And right. they're not you can't respond to violence with violence. And I think it's not so it's not so simple and straightforward that you say um, you can't react this way. To violence, you, you know, we, we got to be civilized, whatever, because I do think it's something deeper going on here. And so are, are there, there are pathologies or things that have happened to us 
um, that's causing what is this a trauma response? Like what, what what is happening underneath the surface surface that is causing people to react in the way that they are across the, the U.S. right now? Well, what I notice is that a lot of the protesters are a little bit older and a lot of people who are rioting and looting are a little bit younger. So I think it's also a generational uh, aspect to this. And and so when you talk about age and the brain not fully being developed as teenagers and young adults, we are just more impulsive because our prefrontal cortex that inhibits our impulse, our being impulsive is not fully developed. So that's one aspect of it. Right. But it also the older generation, the younger generation, we don't talk as much and we need to have more dialogue to say, yes, we protest it. This is how we protest it. And this was the outcome. On the other hand, the response could be, yeah, y'all protested and look where we are. So I'm tired. And so what you're seeing truly is that trauma response of I'm tired. It's just simply I can't take it anymore. Even if you want to bring it down to a micro level and say, okay, if a person's in an abusive relationship and that person hits them every day, every single day they get hit, but they usually don't fight back. They just take it. And then one day they fight back and they accidentally kill the person. Now this person's on trial for murder, but nobody wants to look at how she or he was beaten every single day. It just so happens that that one time they finally started, decided to fight back, somebody ended up dying and it was the perpetrator, right? And so really looking at it from that context, we've been beat down every day for 400 plus years. Every day we have been belittled. Every day we have been shown that we are nothing, that I can weaponize the police against you and say, if I say this black man is standing in front of me, they're going to come and arrest you and possibly even kill you just because I'm a white woman saying it. And so every single day we have to face these things. And so, yes, what you're seeing is I'm tired. I'm tired of being beaten down. I'm tired of being abused. I'm ready to fight back. It's just that because I've been beaten down so much now that I'm fighting back, me fighting back looks a little bit more vicious than just you punch me in the eye, strangling me every day because you never stabbed me. But you know what? You hit me one too many times. We were in the kitchen. The knife was there. I stabbed you. I didn't mean for you to die, but I had to finally protect myself. So I think that is what absolutely. And, you know, there's been some people call it a conspiracy, even though there's evidence of it. But there's been conversation about agitators. Right. So so people who are in environments making the situation worse. Do you think that that's a legitimate thing? Yes, Um, I think. Well, as a psychologist, I believe in the gray. I don't think anything is 100 percent. Yes or no. Uh, well, it depends like, you know, cheating, like, did you do it? Yes or no. Right. right. <laughs> um, but, but when, when you look at people who almost incite riots, I do believe that some people get together and say, I know that they're going to have this protest going on and I'm going to go there to have it go from peaceful to a riot. I do believe that we even one of my favorite movies that I like to teach on and of course is going to leave my mind as soon as I start talking about it. Um, it's from the nineties and i um, higher learning. It's called mm. higher learning. And at the end of the movie, there's a rally to be very inclusive of the LGBT community of ethnically diverse 
populations and then people of the Aryan Brotherhood, they decided that they wanted to shoot it up. And so I use that as an example to say, yes, some people do use peaceful moments to incite violence. Right. And I, and I think that that piece is something, first of all, I think people see everything is covered by our own bias, right? So if if you are conditioned to say these people are animals, right. they're, they're tearing up their own communities, that is what you're going to see, right? right. If you're conditioned to believe that we, if we got to burn it all to the ground. That's just what we got to do. And, you know, and, and you're going to focus just on the piece of the, the agitator piece who often are, are white people. Let's just say it. They, they are in the mix too yes. as well. That's going to be the discourse. But I agree with you that there are a lot of different factors here that are contributing to what we're seeing. Uh, you know, and, and I'm not from the Kumbaya school of thought right. that we are the world <laughs> come together. I, I just think it's a lot more nuanced than right. that. And I think there are a lot of factors in place. And I think what I've been thinking about, I think this is a good segue, because what I've been thinking about is that we are still in the middle of a global health crisis. So a global health crisis that has been impacting our communities at a disproportionately high rate. Right. Now you have people taking to the streets to protest, which I support. But what I could be, what I'm thinking about, I can't stop thinking about is, what does this mean for our health? Right. These people in a, conclo- in a closed space, they're having these interactions with the police. They're, you know, they're they're fighting all this stuff and it's everything's in the air. Right. And what does that mean for the the rate of, con- you know, contracting this virus? Because it's not over. Right. And people who are underinsured don't, you know, to, all of these things are now in play. And I, and I feel this is what leads me to just sit on my couch and stare at the ceiling most days. And I know a lot of people are are just so exhausted that they're doing the same. Right. So when you have 24 hour news cycle about COVID-19 and you don't even got to go to the news, all you gotta do is go to Facebook. Right. right? And and how it's affecting the people that we know. I think all of us at this point have some connection to someone who's been impacted um, by this virus. So when you have that, and then that's juxtaposed with, uh, what we are experiencing in various communities with the death of Black lives, what's happening there, and still trying to, those of us who are still working, dealing with that, right? Trying to work and maintain a, maintain a sense of professionalism. Those who aren't working, figuring out unemployment, figuring out how they're trying to pay, they're going to pay their bills. There are a lot of factors in place. Yes. And every person I talk to, Black especially, but also our allies, they are tired. And worse is calling up what you mentioned earlier, depression, even though they can't, they may not label it that. Right. It's calling, it's calling up a lack of patience. Yes. People are also having a hard, they're not getting good night's sleep. So then they're tired during the day and, all, and trying to function. Um, it's putting stressors on our interpersonal relationships. Yes. People who are living with folks, they're, you know, just familial dynamics, all of it. I said all of that to say, what are some coping mechanisms that we should be considering to help us maintain some semblance of sanity? in the midst of the chaos. Turn it off. Mm. <laughs> like we can't continue to inundate ourselves with the images, with the noise, with the media, with our friends, colleagues, adversaries, everybody's opinions. We have to learn to turn it off. We cannot have it on 24/7. And when you watch a movie, try to watch something lighthearted, not something that has to deal with somebody going to jail, somebody killing somebody, right. you know, it's and so 
Turn it off. Honestly, that is the first step not to watch it 24 seven. And I'm not saying to become disconnected from it, but at certain points, you just really got to unplug because it is producing chronic stress in ourselves. And the more stressed out we are, the more snappy we're going to become. So something that is so little, you're just going to overreact to the situation because of how you feel internally, because you're exhausted, physically and emotionally exhausted. And so mind, body, spirit, okay? With the mind, turn it off. Because once you see something, you can't unsee it. Once you hear something, you can't unhear it. And so you really need to start to eliminate how much you are exposed to it. That's first and foremost. Secondly, again, journal. Write, 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 write. And if you don't feel like writing, speak into your phone, speak into something, but you got to get it out because you can't just hold it in. And in this COVID situation, a lot of therapists are using sliding scale, low fee, may even be providing like four or five or six sessions for free. Seek out therapy. It helps. Mind, body, and spirit. Mind, mental health counselor, spirit, spiritual guidance, all three connecting, okay? I'm not saying one or the other. And and then also exercise. We know that 15 minutes of sunlight activates certain neurotransmitters in your brain. It helps you. It also gets your skin popping. So get some sun. And if you feel super unsafe to like go outside, then open a window. But either way, expose yourself to fresh air, get some sunlight, stretch, march in place, do some type of physical activity for at least 15 minutes a day, get the blood flowing. Even if you're unemployed right now, tap into what is your creativity? What do you like to do? Even if you don't feel like you have the means to do it, but just start to sketch out a plan of, okay, when I have the means, how can I do it? Or how can I even be more creative to execute without the means, right? And so really use this time to do some introspection. Why am I so sad? Ask yourself these questions. Why am I so sad? Why am I disappointed? Why am I frustrated? What makes me happy? What brings me peace? What brings me joy? Really start to get to know yourself because then when you interact with somebody who tries to tell you who you are, you can say, well, they ain't talking to me because I know myself. And so I know that that's not who I am, right? Because that's the thing. The media is trying to tell us who we are, which is why you got to turn it off. You got to get into a healthy mental space, seek mental health counseling, journal, exercise, get sunlight, eat properly. A lot of processed foods, you know, food affects your mood. There is certain chemicals that activate other chemicals in our brain that makes us feel more sluggish, more sad, and more depressed. So eat a lot of green leafy vegetables, eat healthy, drink a lot of water, all of those small things that we can do to actually help promote wellness in our bodies. And then spiritually meditate and pray. And for people who say, oh, no meditation, you know, the pouring out and the pouring in that is so um, like. Eastern type medicine. I can't get with that. Well, you are pouring out the toxins and pouring in the Holy Spirit. So whatever verbiage you want to use, center yourself because the more center and calm you are, then you're actually deactivating your amygdala. And your amygdala is in charge of the fear response. And we need to deactivate our amygdala so we can activate our prefrontal cortex and think through our decisions and use the situation to come out stronger. We do that individually, then collectively we can grow. Absolutely. And I definitely want to um, address one thing you said, because I think it's important in, in terms of like getting to know yourself, right? And being able to identify yourself because 
a lot of what's happening with us, and I think this is what people don't really think about. There's a lot going on in the world. There are a lot of triggers happening concurrently, but it's triggering us in terms of unresolved issues that were there before all this stuff. And when the world writes itself, quote unquote, I use that in hard quotations, <laughs> when we find some semblance of normalcy and we go back to it, it doesn't mean everything you're feeling goes away. It may not be as intense, but I believe that life and God continues to send, they continue to send, send us lessons until we get them. So right now the alarm is being wrong and it's really loud, but it's allowing us, I think, to really turn the light onto ourselves and say, how is this affecting me? And what is it calling up? that was probably already there anyway. And let me take this time to really start to look at that and explore and, and figure out how to cope. And the other thing I also want to say, because I hear I hear this too, and I feel like you'll say amen on this. Don't talk about therapy as if you're going to go to four sessions and be healed. Hello. <laughs> it's not that. It's not that. Absolutely. It's not that at all. However, what I can say is sometimes we go to therapy and we don't like the therapist. That's okay. Mm-hmm. Because it's your time, your money, you need to feel comfortable and like the therapist. So go test drive another therapist. That one didn't work out, find another one. I have a friend that I keep saying, did you find somebody? Did you find somebody? You know, who was like, I don't know what I'm looking for. I know you gave me questions to ask. Okay, now you're just giving me excuses. And excuses are tools that lead to a road of nowhere. So I need you to bag up those excuses (laughs) and, um, you know, just find somebody. And that's the thing. A lot of people um, are nervous. There's nothing to be nervous about. You're talking about yourself because you're trying to find healing, but get started somewhere. And also I wanted to to just kind of highlight about this protesting. A lot of people feel that they need to just do something because if they sit in silence, that's not doing anything. If you take time to sit in silence, then you can actually come up with a better plan that might be long lasting and less damaging over time. There's a saying, don't let your right hand know what your left hand is doing. Well, the more you act out, the more they're like, okay, we know what you're doing. But maybe sitting in silence and coming up with a plan that actually be longer effective over time might be the the solution. So I just wanted to offer that to somebody. Absolutely. And I think we need to be having more conversations about how we spend our black dollar. Every every time this stuff happens, it's always talking about a blackout day and we're not going to spend money on this day and and what have you. And and I always bring up um the Montgomery bus boycott. It wasn't a day. It wasn't everybody decided, you know what? We're not dropping our coins to get on the bus for a day. That was a month. And it took, that was the first Uber. It was like, it took ride sharing and all this other stuff. And I also want people to understand if you think that change happened just because black people decided to stay off the bus, it wasn't just that. Right. It's the economics behind it. Right. We withheld our dollar. And when you start impacting the people in power, when you start impacting their money, money, that is a different conversation. But I feel like, you know, and those, those I don't want to minimize and say that people are not talking about this because there are folks who oh, are yeah. way smarter than me and economists who are having these conversations. But another reason why I think we need to get healed and work on that, that wholeness from a psychological, spiritual and you know physical perspective is that so we can start thinking about long term yes. plans how we impact change because that is not an overnight process, right. but our, our minds are so clouded yeah. by the things that we're not addressing 
you know, individually that as a collective, we're not able to come together and think about the more complex problem and how we solve that long term. Right. Um, so I, I, to me, it, 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 there are a lot of different crossroads and intersections that, that need to be um, addressed, which is also why, you know, I don't like when people who don't look like me try to tell me in an overly simplistic way what we need to be doing, because there's so many layers to this. So many layers. Um, that, that need to be addressed. And there are many conversations that need to be happening concurrently. But you referenced um, the questions to be asked. I know one of the things that I hear a lot from folks is they're really intimidated by the search mm-hmm. for a therapist. They don't know what they should be inquiring about other than how much are you going to charge me? Right. So what are some things that, you know, some of the, the inquiries that could be made to make sure that you're finding a good fit for you? Mm-hmm. So I'll just start off. Let's say the person is a white therapist. The first question could be, have you ever seen any black people in your practice before? Um, do you engage in any culturally sensitive treatment modalities? What type of, and this is just for anybody, what type of treatment modalities do you engage in? And you may not know what they're talking about in the moment, but take note, go back and research it for yourself. Definitely take notes. And so you want to know what type of treatments they use, what type of uh, modalities, uh, often how long are people usually in session with them? Um, If you don't know what you want to work on, you can say, I'm not sure what I want to work on. I just know right now I'm just frustrated and I need to process. Um, Do you only do manualized treatment or can people come in here and just process and process means just talk. Um, And so those are like some of the foundational questions. How long are your sessions usually? Do you do um, do you diagnose people? That is so key. I don't take insurance because when you take insurance, you have to diagnose. And when you diagnose, you that follows people Mm -hmm. and that can follow people to jobs, which will then also lead into job disparity. And that's the reason why I know a lot of ethnically diverse people do not necessarily want to go to therapy. However, don't let that stop you. If you need to use your insurance, if you are feeling depressed, use it because they can't just disclose it. Um, That only matters if you actually want to like go into a profession where you have to carry a gun or make, you know, decisions in that regard. Not at every day. um, They do not ask you to disclose or release your medical or mental health records. So do not let that stop you. But that is the key question. Do you diagnose? Or if you do diagnose, will you discuss your diagnosis with me? Do you create treatment plans? If so, are the goals collaborative or do you only come up with the goals as the clinician? And so those would be some of the foundational questions. That's that's good. And one thing I, I want to raise for sure, not as the expert, but as someone who's been through therapy, one piece of guidance I give to folks is that you may go into therapy and come out of a session feeling exposed or worse than you did when you, when you went in. Right. Um, and that, that's a process. It's almost, I, I, I liken it to if you broke a bone and it didn't heal right. And then right. now you're in all this pain and you go to the doctor and they say, oh, we've got to reset it. But to reset it, we got to break it again. I think as a people, we have a lot of scars over things that didn't heal right. And yeah. we, we have to clear out the infection or, or whatever. And sometimes that process, I forget it all the time, that process <laughs> is, can be incredibly painful. And Absolutely. you walk into a situation where someone is helping you get to the root of things and they look up and say, well, that's our time, you know, and it's 50 <laughs> minutes or an hour in, and you're like, but wait, you just had me expose all this stuff. Now I got to live with this for another seven days until I come back. 
It is not an easy process, but if you stick with it, it gets better and and the healing will manifest. I'm so glad you brought that up. That is definitely, definitely key. Absolutely. Know that it will get worse before it gets better. But the beauty is you have a therapist to help support you through the process. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. But be transparent with them to say, I'm feeling uncomfortable. And if you're feeling suicidal because our people, it is on the rise that you also need to express that to them. I know we unpacked a lot. I'm not in a safe space. I need to come up with how to keep myself um, safe. That's also right. important. And that's another conversation I've been having. I swear we're talking about everything I've been talking about with my girlfriends. Like this taboo of suicidal ideations that happened with a lot of us. And I mean, many yes. come from, many of us come from Christian upbringings where like that clouds, whether we'd ever, you know, take the 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 next step there. Cause we're like, I, I don't want to go to hell. Right. So when you kill yourself, right. you're going to hell. That's what we've been told. But right. these suicidal thoughts and ideations that we experience as a culture, I think are a lot more pervasive yes. than we're actually talking about. And because you, you're right, it is becoming something that people are acting on more in our communities. Folks are starting to take note, but it's okay to express that I don't see a way out other than to do this, or I'm having really dark thoughts or I'm envisioning things that I haven't envisioned before. Um, I, I think just promoting the ability to, to be, and I know why we're not, right? I know all the reasons why we are predisposed to pretend to be strong or right. hold, those, those in, and hold those thoughts and emotions in, but we need to start being uh, more gentle and, and kind with ourselves and yes. allow ourselves to reach out for help when we need it before things do get more dire, especially because the ins- the the rate of just undiagnosed real mental health conditions in our communities. Um, it's you never know what's going to trigger you, or tr- you know, right. or you're going to have an episode for something that you didn't even know you had, right? right. So um, I just want to encourage people if if you're having those thoughts, um, they happen to us too, right? Absolutely. It, 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 that that is not a Caucasian thing; it's a people right. thing. And right. it's okay to have those conversations and you should be having them, um, even if it feels dark in the moment, for sure. So I'm right. um, thank you for those questions because I can't tell you how many times someone has asked me, how did you find a good therapist? And I'm like, I was blessed. I don't know. God worked that out. It's not like I knew what to ask either. Um, and it, and also to a point you made earlier, you know, I've been to two different therapists and there was one that walked me through a, a period of my life, but she's the one who stood up and said, you, when you decide, I think you're at a good place, but if and when you decide you want to go back to, to therapy, you, it needs to be with the Black therapist because there are certain cultural references that you're making and things that you're bringing up that they would inherently understand that I yes. do not. And right. that was, I thought that was big of her because I thought she was a great clinician, but there were certain gaps there that she knew right. that she couldn't fill. And she, right. she encouraged me to make sure that the next person that I went to could, could address those things. Absolutely. Um, Kudos to her. And that's what I mean by we are evolving and making steps. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So I feel like this is a huge shifting of gears, but it's a question we ask in every interview. So we're going to do it anyway. <laughs> <laughs> Describe a time when you had to be extraordinary on an ordinary day. That is a great question. Extraordinary on an ordinary day. Honestly, I, I feel just every day because of the type of work that I do. I go into jails and I help bring understanding, not excuses. (laughs) I don't excuse the behavior, but I help bring understanding 
to how does this young black person who was born addicted to alcohol and has fetal alcohol syndrome and addicted to cocaine because of what was exposed in utero um, and why you shouldn't just throw the key away and give them 480 days in juvenile hall and another 100 days in adult jail. Um, I feel to me that is being extraordinary on an ordinary day because each case requires so much attention to detail, to making sure that I am, I I know I'm nobody's superwoman, but to make sure that I I show up as such, even if it's not favorable, but to me being extraordinary is giving my 110% to all of my clients my clinical forensic clients, to the attorneys that I work with, to the youth and young adults at my church. And so to me, that is what is being extraordinary in an ordinary day looks like. For sure. Well, there are like 17 other subtopics that (laughs) I felt like, because I I mean, the whole rehabilitative space within the criminal justice system, I didn't even get into all of that because there are a lot of things that I have to say and a lot of questions that I want to ask. So we're de- you're definitely going to have to come back. Yeah, there's going to there's gonna have to be a part two because there's so many things that I, I want to unpack there. And I know that you have the expertise to do so. But I know that you mentioned your website, your online, all that great stuff. So where can people find you? So you can find me the at sign underscore F1R3. That's my Instagram handle. Um, but if you really want to engage with me, go to my website. That's the number seven, fire, F-I-R-E, the number eight.com. And then you can just navigate through there and the different spaces on there. And you have mentioned at various points in, in the conversation that all the things that you do, but you know, you're, you're in the, the jails, um, you're, you're working as a custody evaluator, but you also engage in trainings. So yes, people, people want to bring you in for trainings for within their organizations that that's a possibility too. Are you working with you? You have a private practice also. I do. So right now, so in 2019, even earlier, 2020, I used to do 500 million things. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was working hundred hours a week, getting exactly six hours of sleep, you know, very disciplined. And yet, yeah, no, that's not healthy for anybody. Do not do that people. But it was, I had an end goal in mind. And my end goal was that I was going to hustle until um, I established myself. And so I am in my private practice full time. And again, part-time custody evaluator. And in my private practice, I have a small clinical uh, caseload. I keep it under 10 clients. And during the pandemic, I tried to accommodate, but uh, clinical work is the smallest portion. I do forensic evaluations as well as trainings, um, trainings on any topic, whether it's psychological evaluations, implicit bias, whatever um, whatever the, they may need. I know a organizer from out of New York contacted me to put together a wellness training for teachers. So really whatever topic and with the pandemic, a lot of my trainings are online, but once the pandemic subsides, I do in-person trainings and I also teach. I teach at Point Loma um, University as well as Pepperdine University for the undergraduate and graduate levels. So So you're still hustling. I mean, that's still a lot of things. Let's, let's be clear. (laughs) But I'm on the normal people hustle. I only work like, you know, 60, 
65 hours a week, you know. I get it. As I, I refer to myself as DJ Double Booked. So I get it. Trust me, I understand. It, it is very difficult to juggle. I know about the million hustles. And, and I mean, we just come from women who are like that. I know your mom. She's a boss. So I get it. Uh, but to our listeners, well, first, let me say I thoroughly enjoyed this conversation. I'm serious that we have to have you back for part two there's we just hit the tip of the iceberg there's so many other things to discuss but i feel like this is the conversation that i wanted to start um and start to educate educate the people who listen to the show so thank you so much uh, for, for, for being with us to our listeners dr rogers is online we've talked about a number of things in which she is well versed if you want to learn more about historical trauma, the power of control wheel. There's information out there. I would suggest you start with her website, follow her on social media. She, this is not the only talk that she's done. She, she mentioned there's information online. There are videos online digest. We have to get physically, emotionally, spiritually, mentally, all that we have to get well. And it comes by educating ourselves and availing ourselves to the people who understand our experiences because they've had them right they're they're living it that we have that that common bond as well so you know we can have all the experts who've read in the books but not all of them have lived it dr rogers has lived what we're living she is living what we're living so make sure you check her out go follow her support our own we you know we need to have the large audiences too because i'm on a soapbox for a minute but i'm gonna say it the larger audience you have online it's not just the expertise the audience the larger the audience the more opportunity and we need bigger platforms to talk about the things that we've studied. We've spent money and time and resources to become experts in. And she's at the highest level of her field. And she deserves the big platforms that we've seen uh, some other folks have. So go follow her and engage, talk, interface. I, I really went off on a tangent there. But this is important because you are dropping truths and you've done the work. Thank you. you and you need, you need platforms to be able to communicate that. So to so our listeners, do your part to support And remember, as always, to be extraordinary on an ordinary day. Take care. Thank you for listening to the December 26th podcast. I am your host, Delisha. This episode was produced by Demarcus Adisa and music was provided by Thovo. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at December 26th. That's December 26ER. 